0: Welcome to Title Now. This is Melissa Murphy, General Counsel of the Fund, and today we're going to talk about the Florida Legislature. Being involved in the legislative and regulatory process on behalf of fund members is a very important part of the fund's mission. It is not easy to navigate the legislative process, and if you aren't vigilant, bills can get passed that aren't exactly in our best interests. So, it's important that we engage experts to help us through this process and the fund has two of the best. Warren Husband and Jim Doughton are principals in the Tallahassee firm Metz Husband & Doughton with whom the fund has had a very productive long-term relationship. They're here to talk with us today about what to expect in the 2018 legislative session. Jim and Warren, welcome to Title Now, and thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Melissa. Thank you.
0: So I think it would be helpful for our members if you would review the schedule leading up to the official beginning of the 2018 session.
1: Very good, yeah, happy to do that. Essentially, ordinarily, the legislature would meet in the March to May timeframe, the only time that uh, at least constitutionally they vary from that as in a, a redistricting year after the federal census when they have to reapportion and redraw the district lines. But they have increasingly been meeting in Tallahassee in the January to March time frame. That's actually preferable, you know, for a lot of legislators, uh, I think, especially those with children who'd like to have their spring break, uh, you know, with their, their families. Also, it provides greater lead time between the completion of the budget and the beginning of the, uh, the state's new budget year, on July 1. So, as a consequence, this year's 2018 session will convene on January 9th and then it will run until March 9th. And between now and then, we've got several weeks where legislators will be in town for committee meetings where they will discuss a variety of issues. They'll discuss and in fact move bills along uh, in the legislative process. Our first committee week was supposed to be September 12th that week, but if those meetings were all canceled due to Hurricane Irma. So, The upcoming meetings are the week of October 9, October 23, November 6th, and November 13th, and then they're also back for one week in December, the week of December 4th.
0: So are there already bills that have been filed that the committees are giving thumbs up or thumbs down to?
1: Absolutely. There's been a couple of hundred bills filed thus far. We'll have a couple of thousand before it's all over. So there'll be a lot of bills filed between now and and the beginning of the session on January 9th. But there are certainly bills that are already in the hopper and that committees are considering and moving along the process, even this first week of committee meetings.
0: So it's important that we be involved even during these very early committee meetings.
2: That's exactly right, Melissa. Really, the interim committee meetings are are a critical time where legislation can not only be filed but also heard in committee and sort of move through the legislative process. The only action that the legislature can't take during an interim committee meeting week is, uh, is final passage of a bill. And if you're actually trying to be proactive and pass a bill, the the rule of thumb is that it has to have at least one hearing prior to the beginning of the legislative session.
0: How difficult is it to get a bill on the agenda for the committees that need to weigh in?
2: Well, it's very difficult, first of all, just to get a bill filed. Uh, The House members are limited to six bills that they can file for any given legislative session. The Senate can file as many as they'd like, although they have to introduce their bills in person and participate in all the committees. So you could imagine if a senator had 40 or 50 bills, he or she wouldn't have anything else to do but present bills in committee. So the process is really built to have fewer bills filed than more. And of course, when your legislative committees change every two years, your committee chairman change every two years, as does your Senate president and speaker, there's a lot of people who are just learning the ropes during these interim committee meetings. So it's very important that when you're trying to be proactive and pass legislation, that you really get to work in the summer, educate those committee members, and then push hard to get your bill heard on an agenda in one of those early committee meetings.
0: Wow. It's It sounds like a minor miracle if a bill makes it through. What about the whole issue of the budget? You all just mentioned sort of in passing the budget, but is the budget something that is dealt with in these committee meeting hearings?
2: Yes. As a matter of fact, the only bill that the legislature has to pass every year is the budget bill. And of course, with a state budget around $83 billion, one of the largest economies in the world, you can imagine that it takes a great deal of time on behalf that the legislators spend to try and pass a mandatory balanced budget each year. That's one of the things that differentiates the state of Florida from one, other large states, and of course, also the federal government. Already, plans are being made For the 2018-19 fiscal year, which begins on July 1st, agencies have submitted their budget requests to the governor, and then the governor has to submit his overall budget recommendations to the legislature at least 30 days prior to the beginning of the legislative session. And in terms of the fiscal outlook, I think it's important to note that prior to Hurricane Irma, Florida was hovering at a very, very slight surplus. Those of you who are involved in in real estate, which I suspect is all fund members, can tell that the real estate market has been doing pretty well. That's a key driver of the state budget. But because of IRMA, it looks like that that slight surplus for the next fiscal year has been eliminated. And we're waiting to see, revenue estimators are waiting to see what the impact of IRMA is going to be on the upcoming budget. They're painting a very sort of a dismal view of what the next fiscal year may may look like. We're going to be watching this budget process uh, very carefully over the next few months.
0: So do you think that the governor is going to take this right up to that 30-day advance deadline before he'll present a budget?
2: The governor often, uh, this governor and prior governors, have often seen the budget as a an opportunity to lay out to the public what their important policy issues are going to be. And so typically they will sort of pre-announce some of the big initiatives that are on the governor's priority list prior to the beginning of that budget submission. So you may see Governor Scott move around the state and talk about education issues or talk about tax policy or talk about health care. And then it all culminates in the beginning of that budget. So I would expect during the month of November, you're going to see uh, see him moving around the state talking about the fiscal situation that the state's in and what his priorities are.
0: That's a perfect segue into comment and a question that I have for you. Because I've been pretty involved in the legislative process for a number of years, and I am always impressed by the range of issues and important issues that our legislators have to try and deal with. They have to try to solve a problem or make better. It's not not a narrow range of issues. It's a very, very broad range of issues. So what's up in 2018?
1: Well, Melissa, one of the things that the legislature will certainly be focusing on is issues involving the aftermath of Hurricane Irma, both uh, the response and, and preparedness aspects of, of dealing with hurricanes. And the House has actually created a select committee to deal with that, you know, those range of issues. The Senate, thus far, is looking at kind of examining a lot of these issues via their Appropriations Committee and the various subcommittees that that make up that appropriations committee, each of which has their own, you know, different area of of jurisdiction, for example, transportation or education or or what have you. The range of issues that they'll be looking at in that context are, are, you know, pretty broad from avoiding and mitigating, you know, future storm damage, which, you know, can get into issues with building code, electrical outages, uh, infrastructure hardening, how do we reduce flooding in, in various areas, et cetera. And they range from that to issues involving the evacuation and the adequate supply of gasoline, medical facilities and their power needs and, and backup power needs, issues involving reconstruction. You know, are there barriers or issues in Florida law that, that could be dealt with that would expedite the reconstruction of, of damaged facilities? And it ranges from there all the way to issues of, of tax relief, you know, that could be helpful in, in bringing communities back online as well as a lot of issues involving insurance and banking, you know, where was the worst of the damage, what kind of issues are involved in terms of reserves and reinsurance levels for, for example, the cat fund and things of that nature. So it's a broad, broad range of issues that, uh, that come into that overall subject of hurricane preparedness and readiness.
0: So is this House Select Committee going to study this and make recommendations or propose specific legislation? What's the process?
1: It's not preordained per se, but I think they're going to be at least initially gathering a lot of information to see what, you know, again, are there things legislatively that they could or should do that would, you know, make preparedness and recovery more effective. The jury's out on exactly what all that will be. You know they're pretty much in an information gathering mode. You know at this point.
0: Well, I would think dealing with post-hurricane issues would be something that would be pretty obvious for our elected officials to deal with. But what is a really hot topic that might not come as readily to mind?
2: Somewhat related to hurricane season, anyway. uh, One of the things that I think the legislature is going to have to address, at least from a budgeting perspective, are issues relating to immigration and. A number of residents of Puerto Rico that will now become Floridians, we suspect, in the next uh, in the next few months. Early estimates are that Florida could see an extra 100,000 to 300,000 new residents from Puerto Rico, and what that impact is going to be on our social services and education in the short term, in particular, is going to be top of mind for the legislature. And while they're doing all of those issues, you could also um, there are other issues around the country that are very important to Florida, including how we as a state deal with the opioid issue. This is a topic that's been very important to Senator Negron and Senator Latvala. That's our Senate president and our Senate Appropriations chairman. You're going to see Governor Scott also very involved in promoting a solution to the crisis that we see with opioid overuse it is not just a South Florida problem. We're going to see issues involving prescribing restrictions on opioids and also a money. Governor Scott's proposing an additional $50 million to help fund substance abuse treatment. How we as a state address this opioid crisis is also going to be top of mind for the legislature.
0: That is not an easy issue for them to deal with and is is an extremely different from just dealing with post-hurricane issues or budget issues. Um, so, again, I'm just always impressed with the range of issues that the legislature has to deal with. One of the recurring issues that I seem to remember coming up every year is workers' comp. Is there anything going on in that arena this year?
1: Well, Melissa, there, there certainly was uh, a lot going on in the in the 2017 session, but just to kind of uh, set the table and and give you a little bit of the chronology, if you really look at the issue, it actually dates back to the early 2000s. In about 2002, Florida employers were paying among the highest workers' comp premiums in the country. So in 2003, the legislature actually enacted significant reforms to the workers' comp system. And among other major changes, uh, the legislation included a mandatory fee schedule that tied the attorney's fees for an injured worker to a percentage of the benefits recovered for that worker. And what you found is that over the ensuing decade, Florida's workers' comp premiums declined by about 60% over that time period. So uh, now we're at a point where Florida's rates today rank about 33rd in the in the nation instead of at the very top. That situation was was positive until about 2016. Last year, the Florida Supreme Court invalidated. That mandatory attorney's fee schedule that I mentioned in a case called Castellanos, and they invalidated it on due process grounds. NCCI, which is the entity that files workers' comp rates for all carriers in the state, they proposed a 19.6% rate increase effective October 1 of 2016, principally by virtue of the the result of the the Castellanos decision. Ultimately, the the Florida Office of Insurance Regulation approved a rate increase of 14.5% that went into effect December 1 of 2016. If you advance now to to 2017 and the 2017 session, there was legislation uh, to install a new attorney's fee schedule, but that legislation ultimately didn't get across the finish line due to differences between the, the House and the Senate. In August of this year, uh, NCCI actually proposed a 9.3% rate decrease, but I would emphasize that that decrease was based on claims data that pre- that preceded the Castellanos decision. So the, the real claims impact of Castellanos hasn't been felt yet. But nonetheless, as we go into the 2018 session, uh, that proposed rate reduction has really dampened the legislature's enthusiasm for digging into the workers' comp system, which is always a very difficult and contentious issue. So as a result, I expect that all the activity that we saw in the 2017 session, in 2018, there's probably not going to be a great deal of activity and probably won't be until really the rate impact of Castellanos filters through into the rate process, which won't be until probably, you know, late 2018. So I think that issue is, you know, you'll see some press about it, but it doesn't look like there's a lot of appetite to dig into that at this point.
0: Is there anything that you are watching particularly on behalf of our fund members?
1: Well, there's a, cup, there's a, a couple of bills that have been filed thus far. And of course, as I mentioned, you know, there's only been a couple of hundred out of what will ultimately be a couple of thousand bills filed. But there's uh, basically three that, uh, that I could touch on today. Number one, there's the bill dealing with the interspousal transfer of real property uh, and exempting those transfers from documentary stamp taxes. Uh, as you know, those taxes are assessed currently at 70 cents per $100 in consideration. Uh, and transfers incident to a divorce are already exempt from the doc stamp tax. But there are three proposals recently that the Revenue Estimating Conference has uh, scored, and they're a group of economists and Senate and House staffers who look at proposals, in particular ones that, that are going to have a fiscal impact uh, and determine how much you know those Those items are going to cost, so when the legislature, you know, is considering them and enacting them, dollars flow out so that, you know, if if there's going to be a cost to, for example, a tax exemption like the one I'm referring to, they would know exactly how much or have a really good idea of what that was going to cost. So the three proposals that the Revenue Estimating Conference took a look at exempting from the documentary stamp tax, one would be transfers between spouses of any real property that secures mortgage debt or any other debt. Uh, And that would start July 1 of 2018. The Revenue Estimating Conference put a a score on that of uh, it would cost the state about $8.3 million annually. Uh, And that's the the upper end of of, uh, the three proposals in terms of its its breadth and how much it would cost the state. The second proposal was to exempt transfers between spouses of homestead property, at least homestead that was in, in place at least within a year before the transfer with that homestead property securing a mortgage debt or, again, another debt. And that scored at about $4.2 million annually, so about half of, of the, uh, the broader exemption. Then finally, the, the narrowest of the three proposals uh, is actually in the form of a bill that's been filed, and that would exempt transfers between spouses of, of homestead property, where the only consideration is the amount of a mortgage or a lien encumbering the property at the time of transfer. And the transfer is recorded within one year of the date of marriage. And that actually scored at the lowest number, as you would expect, since it's so much more narrow, at $1.5 million annually.
0: That third proposal would only exempt those transfers that are made within one year from the date of the marriage?
1: That's correct. And that bill would go into effect, it would start July 1, 2018, as the other you know, proposal suggested. So it's by far the narrowest of, of the three and thus the lowest price tag.
0: So all of three of those proposals are churning their way through the committee structure?
1: Well, only one has been filed as a bill. The other two were submitted by senators or, or legislators to get a score to see if it's something they might want to pursue. So it might end up in a bill. It might end up as an amendment to a bill. It might end up as an amendment to the one bill that's already been filed on the issue, et cetera. We'll have to wait and see how that, how that pans out.
0: Another issue that has come up in the past two or three sessions have been some attempts to amend the marketable record title act. Is there, Are there amendments or proposed amendments that you guys are watching this year?
1: Yes, absolutely. There is, as you mentioned, a bill's been filed for a, a while now, uh, and certainly there wasn't in, in 2017 that ultimately didn't pass. But uh, just by way of background, and in fact, it's it's been filed for 2018 as we speak. As you know, the, the marketable Record Title Act, uh, I'll refer to it as MARTA. Uh, it was enacted back in 1963 to simplify and, and facilitate land transactions. Generally, MARTA provides that any person who has been vested with any estate and land uh, that's been of record for 30 years or more has a marketable record title that's free and clear of most claims or encumbrances. In essence, kind of MARTA serves as the ultimate statute of limitations for land. One effect of MARTA, however, is that covenants and restrictions are extinguished 30 years after their creation. So a homeowner's association's covenants and restrictions can expire and become unenforceable. And although MARTA had long provided a method for renewing those covenants, uh, many associations still failed to, to do so. There was some legislation enacted in 2004 and 2007 that provided a revival method for homeowner's associations. But in that process, they actually left out two different categories of property owners' associations that were left out. Those would be commercial landowners, things like office parks, industrial parks, uh, and other kinds of commercial districts. And then secondly, neighborhoods that, that have enforceable covenants, but that don't have any formal homeowners' association. So in 2017, there was a bill that was filed, as you say, I think it was filed one or two years before that, To correct that problem and add these other types of property owner associations to the revival process it also included a provision that required a homeowners association at least once every five years to file in the official records of the county a notice and that notice would indicate whether the association wanted to continue to preserve the covenants or restrictions from extinguishment or whether they didn't so essentially that five-year filing would have the effect of kind of restarting Marta's 30-year clock. Somewhat more controversially, the the house bill also addressed a recent decision by the 3rd District Court of Appeal which held that government-imposed encumbrances are regulatory in nature and are not subject to extinguishment uh, under Marta. The house bill amended the law to make clear that a county or municipality may amend, release, or terminate a restriction or a covenant that it imposed at the approval or issuance of the development permit following the existing procedural requirements that are already in florida law about how cities and counties can do that and so the house bill made a a number of amendments to that aspect of the law in terms of government encumbrances that i think ended up being somewhat controversial so in the final two days of the the 2017 session the policy differences between the said in the House emerged that they could not reconcile in the remaining time they had, so the bill didn't pass. But it's been filed already for 2018, the Senate Bill 266. But that bill doesn't include all the language about local government encumbrances, at least it doesn't at this point. So that remains, I think, maybe a bone of contention, but uh, they're going to make another stab at it here in 2018 and see if they can get it passed.
0: Well, that sounds like a very complicated area of the law for you to keep an eye on. One of the issues that I have been seeing pop up in blogs and other news alerts all across the country is this whole issue of remote electronic notarization of documents. Is Florida moving in that direction?
1: It's interesting, that issue popped up in the last session in 2017. While Florida notaries are already authorized to notarize documents electronically, in particular, the notion of electronic witnessing of documents came up in the context of a of a bill in 2017 that would have authorized electronic wills in Florida. That bill ultimately right. passed, but it was vetoed by Governor Scott. So uh, I'm sure we're going to see some activity on that in the coming you know, legislative session.
0: Well, that would be an area that we need to pay a lot of attention to on behalf of fund members because it has a lot of ramifications for their daily practice, and for ensuring title and making sure the documents are correctly executed in accordance with the law for insurance purposes.
1: Absolutely. And and that bill from 2017, it provided for an electronic will, which could be witnessed through the remote presence of two witnesses via a live, secure video and audio link with at least one of those witnesses being an attorney or a notary. And there was a variety of requirements that the bill put in place in terms of, you know, the nature of that live teleconference to ensure the identity of the testator. Various questions had to be put to the testator on, you know, uh, on tape so that it, it could be the testator's competence, you know, could be evaluated, et cetera, et cetera. And Governor Scott vetoed the bill because he didn't feel there were adequate safeguards uh, in the bill to protect the willmaking process from exploitation and fraud. So uh, he vetoed it, but encouraged the legislature to take another shot at it and see if they couldn't fix some of those concerns.
2: And Melissa, you could see a situation where some of the proponents of the electronic wills decide to maybe take a smaller bite at the issue and just focus on the electronic notarization of documents. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But I think, as you mentioned, what you've read and seen in other parts of the country, you're going to see in Florida in 2018.
0: I don't doubt it a bit, and I feel a lot better having you guys up there keeping an eye out for it. So how does the Constitutional Revision Commission fit into all of this? What effect are they going to have, and how are they working?
2: Well, we certainly couldn't let a policy briefing occur without discussing the Constitutional Revision commission. Florida is uh, the only state in the country that allows almost a set of uh, founding mothers and fathers, if you will, uh, put issues directly on the ballot for consideration by the voters. This is a commission that is appointed once every 20 years. They review Florida's Constitution and propose changes for voter consideration. The attorney general serves on the Constitutional Revision Commission, and then the governor gets to appoint 15 members, and the Senate and Speaker each appoint nine And then the Chief Justice appoints uh, appoints three. These commission meetings take recommendations from the public, and also commissioners can come up with their own recommendations for changes to the Constitution. They vet those through a committee process this Constitution Revision Commission holds. And ultimately, the decisions that the CRC, if you will, make can be placed directly on the 2018 ballot. Of course, it takes 60% of the citizens to adopt an amendment to the state constitution. So, the CRC is also trying to gauge what is palatable, palatable, not just to their own members, but also to the voters in a 2018 election.
0: Any prognostication as to how many amendments will get through the process and we will see on the ballot in November?
2: If it holds true from 1978 and 1998, I suspect you'll see under 12 make it through the entire process. And they could range on issues. That's right. They could range on issues from From education policy to tax to health care, if you look at the various sections of the Constitution, there's not anything that would be immune from the CRC scrutiny.
0: Well, and of course, one of the most common constitutional concepts that real estate attorneys deal with, and probate attorneys also, is homestead. And sometimes people lose sight of the fact that many of the characteristics and aspects of homestead property are based on a constitutional provision, and that potentially could be the topic of one of these amendments. So it's important for us to keep a close eye on what comes out of this commission.
2: That's exactly right.
0: Well, Warren and Jim, thank you so much for joining me on Title Now. I really appreciate your time. I certainly appreciate what you do for the fund and for fund members across the state. And look forward to hearing what happens during the fall committee meetings and getting geared up for what kicks off in January.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it will certainly be a grueling few months. All of us in Tallahassee have our track shoes on and are ready to do our thing. But it's so important and really to emphasize to to the members that, you know, you really have to be on the ground in Tallahassee all the time the saying up here is uh, in Tallahassee: If you are not at the table, then you are on the menu. That is certainly something that's proved out <laughs> time and time again in Tallahassee. You have to be there around the ball, or uh, your interest can easily be eclipsed. So,
0: well, thank you all again. Thank, thank you. you. So, thank you for listening to Title Now. What else do you need to know today? I think I'm going to take this opportunity. To suggest that what you need to know and realize is that Jim, Warren, and I cannot do it on our own up in Tallahassee, and we need your help. And the way in which we need your help right now is for you to support the Fund's Political Committee title, and that would be by making a contribution to title. So, that we can support those legislators in Tallahassee who understand our issues, are supportive of our issues, and help us to promote our agenda in Tallahassee. So, be on the lookout for an email from me giving you more information from Title. And I hope that this session of Title Now has shown you why it's so important that you support Title and help us in Tallahassee. As always, thank you for your support of the fund.